For the message today, we'll be wrapping up the, the fifth part of our Chasing Carrots series, where we've talked about there's these things in our lives that we chase after, and so often what we're trying to do, what I try to do, is I try to put that thing that I'm chasing after in place of God. So much so that I'm pursuing it with everything that I have, that if and when I finally do attain it, it seems empty. And it's nowhere near as important as I thought that it would be. In weeks past, we talked about how I will chase after fame. I want people to know who I am and know that I am important, that we chase after money and stuff and things and possessions, and, and I put them in place of God, and then good things, when they become ultimate things, they become destructive things, and I get my life messed up. I also talked about how I will chase after in life perfectionism. Do you feel like that? Well, if I can't do it right, I don't want to do it at all, or if I... And then so we think if we mess up in one little place in our life when it comes to following God and living our life how Jesus has called for us to, I may as well give up. I may as well not even try because I'm not worth it and Jesus is just disappointed in me. We also talked about how we chase after approval of other people when our Heavenly Father approves of us. And so much so he sent Jesus to die because of my sin. If I was the only person in the world that ever sinned, he still would have sent Jesus to the cross to die for my sin. Now, when I say God approves of me, my Father approves of me, and he does, he doesn't approve of the sin and the light that when I do things to disobey him, he does not approve of that. He tells me very plainly what is right and what is wrong and what I should not do. But because we should chase after what our Father thinks of us, that we are new creations created because of Jesus and our, our sins are forgiven. Not chasing after the approval of people, but chasing after the approval of our Father. And the thing about, we don't really have to chase it, that God gives it to us. It's a free gift that he offers to us. And today, well, I'll just, I've got to adjust this because I'm right here at it. Um, we're going to talk about uh, one other thing that we chase after an awful lot. And probably when I come over here and I touch these, it's not just by accident that I'm doing it, but you're probably thinking, I'm going to freeze. Or you're probably thinking, dear goodness, thank you, I'm blazing hot, because I know this to be true. If myself and Alicia and Lisa are, we're good, Pam is frozen. She's a Pam sickle up here. That's why she has her quilt. She is here prepared for church. She just is. That's how it works. And we have programs, and sometimes it works, and then other times where it's not so hot outside, so we're in that in-between thing where if the air is running, it's freezing, which means I'm comfortable, which means a lot of you are frozen. And if I'm sweating, then you're comfortable. So, like, we can't always just have comfort even in this room for the people that are gathered. But one thing I find, it's not just the HVAC system, but if you're talking about doing an upgrade in your house or you're talking to someone who works in that technology, they don't even call it that as much anymore. That's what it is. That's what they study, heating and ventilation and air conditioning. But it's a comfort system because it doesn't just regulate the air that's in your home. It doesn't just move air through because we know what life's like sometimes when the temperature's okay, but the air's just stagnant not quite as good. It's not quite as comfortable. We need something going. Maybe that's why some of us, we've always got a fan going. doesn't matter what the temperature is. We need that air moving so we can remain comfortable. But if you go to buy a new unit or upgrade it for your house, it's not just air conditioning and heat. It's a comfort system because why? Well, we want to be comfortable. It regulates the humidity. It regulates the temperature. It keeps the airflow going. What we'll talk about today is one of the things that we chase after in life is that we chase after comfort. We want to be comfortable. We think, hey, I deserve it. I should be comfortable after all. Look at all these other people in life who aren't even trying to follow after God, and their life seems way more comfortable than mine. God would want me to be comfortable, right? 
Well, if you pay attention to the news this past week, um, talking about some of the little things that we complain about in life, about I want to be comfortable, I want to make sure the temperature is between this range and these couple degrees. If we were all most consumed with our comfort, the world as we know it would not exist. Our country as we know it would not exist. You probably saw some of the stories from this past Thursday, the 75th anniversary of D-Day, where the soldiers stormed the beach of Normandy. And in fact, some went and recreated their jumps, 90-year-old men recreating their jumps onto the beaches of Omaha. 75 years after it had happened. In fact, um, among those that were brave enough not to just worry about their own comfort, but Carl Mann, um, this week, was buried at Arlington National Cemetery. He was among the troops who stormed the beach on June 6, 1944. He was awarded later three Purple Hearts and seven Bronze Stars. He died at, in March of this year at the age of 96, and his burial on June 6th was, turns our attention to that iconic cemetery at our nation's capital. He made a different choice. Or had one man made a different choice, that parcel of land would not be Arlington National Cemetery. As history tells us, in 1831, Robert E. Lee married the daughter of George Washington's grandson and moved into her family's homestead in Arlington, Virginia. They spent the next three decades raising their family on that property, but because of Lee's connection to Washington, he was offered a command of a Union army as the Civil War began. He declined, and his military mentor, General Winfred Scott, rebuked him, saying, Lee, you have made the greatest mistake of your life. Lee resigned his commission and left his home in Arlington never to return. The U.S. Army occupied his home on May 24, 1861, and has held it ever since. It was initially a military post, but as the casualties mounted from the war and Washington cemeteries filled up, the Secretary of War, Edwin Stanton, seized the opportunity to take revenge against a man that he considered to be a traitor against his country. Arlington became the cemetery that provided hundreds of acres of graves, and it guaranteed that Lee would never be able to return to his home. On May 14, 1864, Private William Christman became the first soldier interned at Arlington, where now over 400,000 soldiers are buried. And in the moment, in the small or even the big moments of our life, our choices might not seem very significant, but history reminds us over and over and over again that we are to weigh the significance of the choices that we make. Weigh them carefully because they have long-lasting implications. And too often in life, for, for the church and for Christians, and really for everybody, what I find is that we chase after this counterfeit comfort. We chase after something that we think is going to make us better. We think it's going to make us okay. And when we chase after this counterfeit comfort, it realizes that there's a spiritual emptiness inside of us. I'm going to string together some scriptures for us. The first will come from First John, a little book, in the New Testament, um, near the very, very end, just before Revelation. 1 John chapter 2 and verse 15, we're told this. We're often what happens, not just in 1 John, but in Revelation and the Gospel of John, all written by the beloved disciple John, among Jesus' three closest. He highlights the the love that we're to have and how we are a light, and Jesus is a light in the world. But the same guy who records the words of Jesus in John 3.16 
says this too. First John 2.15, do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires and the flesh and the desires of the eyes and the pride of life is not from the Father, but it is from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires. But whoever does the will of God abides forever. We're told, do not love the world or the things of, of the world. But in the same breath, we can go back to that famous passage in John where it says, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son. And here, John's talking about not the people that comprise the world because people are the, the capstone, the, the best part of God's creation, even though we messed up his creation worse than anything else. But here what John is telling us, we don't love the things of the world, the things that the world says are most important. Because if we do, the love of the Father is not in us, if that is our priority. Another passage of Scripture in the New Testament comes from 2 Corinthians. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 14 and 15. The whole chapter of 2 Corinthians 5 is talking about our heavenly dwelling, how God has promised us something that's more than just this life. This life is good and great and wonderful at times, and at other times it is heartbreaking and heart-wrenching and difficult and dark. But the promise and the hope that we have, if you put your hope into Jesus and you realize that Jesus is coming back for the church to redeem us, to restore us, to take us to live with the Father forever, that's what 2 Corinthians 5 is talking about, a heavenly dwelling that God is going to give us. And just reading a few verses, verses 14 and 15, it says, For the love of Christ controls us. Maybe your translation says compels us. For the love of Christ controls us because we have concluded this, that one has died for all talking about Jesus. One has died for all, therefore all have died, and he died for all, and that those might live, who might live, no longer live for themselves, but they live for him for who he died for their sake, and he was raised. It's not just about us, but the love of Christ controls us. The love of Jesus compels me to live my life differently, not just to pursue what I think is most important or what I will be most comfortable with, but instead to pursue what Jesus told me to do, which is to make sure we are making fishers of all men, that we are raising up generations no matter of age, because when we all come to Jesus, we are spiritual infants, whether we're six or 93. When we come to Jesus, we are spiritual infants, and he raises us up and he grows us. And he works alongside us with the power of the Holy Spirit in us. And that is why we can, as individuals who make up the church, we live our lives differently. That your priority in life should be different than those who are not following after Jesus. Because if we're searching after a fake comfort, a counterfeit comfort, it's going to realize that our priority is not in the right place and we're not living our lives as Jesus has told us to. Because Christ loves compels us it controls us it should be guiding our actions and our behavior and certainly we're all going to mess up every one of us some days a lot more than others but it's this love that jesus has for us that's going to should steer the direction of our life and ultimately help guide us to the destination where we want to be with us with god forever in the new heavens and the new earth when they come down and they dwell in this place 
Because we don't want to put our hope in things that are empty. We don't want to put, I don't want to put my hope in things that ultimately are just going to go out of style or break down or I'm going to change my mind and realize I don't like it that much anyway. Have you ever done that? You bought something, you were so in love with it, and you brought it home, and you're like, ah, I shouldn't have spent that much money. Or that was a really good deal. Or it doesn't look as good as I thought. Or I'm never going to use it. Or now it's just junk. And now we have to have a yard sale to get rid of all this junk that we spent money on for stuff that we love. Then we were at home, and we didn't really love it in the first place. And why we thought stuff would fill the God-shaped hole in our hearts is besides me. Actually, that's not true. I know why. Because we have an enemy who is actively working against us, and he wants nothing more than for me to ignore what God tells me is best for my life. He wants me to chase after anything that might be good but isn't God, to take my attention off of him. And if we're chasing after things that are going to produce a counterfeit comfort, it takes away our need for faith. It takes away my need to rely on God. Hebrews chapter 11, verse 6 says this, says, And without faith, it is impossible to please God, because anyone who comes to him must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who earnestly seek him, that God rewards those who earnestly seek after him, who genuinely are trying. Because God's grace is not opposed to effort, it's opposed to earning. I can't earn God's love. He just loves me because that is who he is. And because God gave up everything for us, he sacrificed Jesus for you. My response should be that I want to be obedient because God loved me so much. That even when I was unlovable, I want you to think for just a minute. Do you have somebody? I know you, know, I know you do. Try to think of somebody in your life that you know that you just can't stand them. Please don't point. You can point later, okay? Don't point. And can you just think of somebody that in this life, you just can't stand them. They drive you nuts. They cannot do anything right. And they're just, when I sin, apart from Jesus, God can't be in the same place with sin. He despises sin because it goes against his, his very nature. Yet while I was still enemies, while I was still a sinner, while I was still an alien, a foreigner. All these languages are used throughout Scripture to describe what, how God has to view me because of my sin. While I was still God's enemy, he sent Jesus to die for me, knowing that some are going to respond, but some aren't. And God was still willing to risk his son because, as Hebrews tells us, without faith, it is impossible to please God because we, I cannot pursue comfort and walk by faith. Can't do it. I cannot pursue comfort and walk by faith. Again, in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, I'm reading verses 3 to 7. 2 Corinthians chapter 1. Blessed be the Father, the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies of God and of all comfort, who comforts us in our affliction, so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction. We'll pause there for just a minute. Why does it say that God comforts us in our affliction? So that we can turn around and comfort others in their affliction. Maybe people who are far from God. Maybe people who aren't far from God but aren't currently listening to God. But God comforts us so that we can turn around and comfort others. Not with humanly or worldly wisdom, but with the love that only comes from Him. 
so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort by which we ourselves are comforted by God. Verse 5, for as we share abundantly in Christ's sufferings, so through Christ we share abundantly in comfort too. If we are afflicted, it is for your comfort and salvation. If we are comforted, it is for your comfort which you experience when you patiently endure the same sufferings that we suffer. Our hope for you is unshaken, for we know that as you share in our sufferings, you will also share in our comfort. Now, if I stop there for just a moment. We have Paul writing a letter to the church in the ancient city of Corinth. That's why it's 2 Corinthians. It came after 1 Corinthians. He wrote them a couple letters because they're messed up just like we are. And so he's writing to people that he knows well, and he says, if, you are, if we are suffer, we suffer on your behalf. If we are comforted, we, comfort, we are comforted on your behalf. He says in verse 6, if we are afflicted, Paul and his ministry companions, if we are afflicted, it is for your comfort and your salvation. What a great view to have of the kingdom of God knowing that we're going to do the things that God has called for us to do. I'm going to do the things that God has called for me to do, knowing that it's not just about me, but it's for the greater good of the kingdom. It's for the greater good of believers in other cities and in other places, and I can take comfort in the fact that I know when I do have to suffer because of my faith or the obedient things that I'm doing, and I'm going to suffer because I'm doing the right things, I can be reminded that others are encouraged in their faith because of that. It says, if we suffer because of what we believe, we will also um, be rewarded at times for what we believe. If we're afflicted, we will also be comforted. It goes both ways. When we share in Christ's difficulties, we share in his victories as well. And I think what is important for us to remember is that I'm going to have to embrace divine discomfort. I'm going to have to get used to the fact that God's primary concern in life is not my ultimate comfort and what Joel wants. But in fact, if I'm really following after Jesus, the enemy, the devil is going to work even harder to try to mess with my life, to try to distract me from him, to try to distract you from keeping your eyes on Jesus, who is the author and the perfecter of our faith. Some more words from the book of Hebrews. In fact, Jesus' brother James says this in our little wisdom book towards the end of the New Testament, James chapter 1, verses 2 to 4. We're told this, it kind of echoes what happens in 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 3 to 9. But James chapter 1, verses 2 and following says, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet various trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, Lacking in nothing. Lacking in nothing. Even casually flipping through Scripture or pulling up on your phone or pulling it up on version, your Bible app or Bible Gateway or just into a, a web browser. Sometimes when I think of a Bible verse and I can't remember where it is, I just pull up my computer and type what I remember into my web browser and there it is. And then I can look it up and find it. Even a casual reading of Scripture lets us know that it is not about my comfort. It's not about chasing after comfort and what I want and what I desire so that I can have an easy life. I want to read a few passages out of the, uh, the book of Romans in the New Testament. I'm going to start in Romans chapter 5. Romans 
Romans chapter 5, I'll read verse 3 and following. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope, and hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. Verse 3, could say, not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings. We glory in our sufferings. Know that not, taking, not rejoicing in the fact that, hey, I'm suffering because I did something stupid because we've been there but we are rejoicing knowing that we are suffering because we are doing what God has told for us to do. That I want to live my life and prioritize my life how God said, not how the world says, not how my mom says, but how God said. And that's going to lead life to look different, to look very different. Just a page, not that far removed from Romans 5 is Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8, I'm going to read verses 18 and 19. Paul says this as we string together this idea about our, our comfort and this thing that we chase that's going to leave us feeling empty. For I consider the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed in us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revelations of the sons of God. New Living says in the very beginning, it says, yet we suffer now. What we suffer with now is nothing to compare with the glory of God that he will reveal later. Trying to fulfill an eternal longing with temporary comfort will lead to an empty life. What I need to remind myself often is I need to focus on the eternal things and not the temporary things. The temporary things are loud. The temporary things yell. The temporary things are painful at the time when we don't have it or we think that we need it. But it's short-sighted. It's really easy in my life for me to, to live short-sighted in my faith, to only be able to see what's, what's right in front of me and not see what God has on the horizon. Now, we have to deal with what's right in front of us in life because that's just how life works. But what we also have to do is have the vision and the wisdom and the understanding that comes through the Holy Spirit who dwells inside of each believer, knowing that God has more for us. There's more that he wants for us to accomplish. I like the way, especially, that the New Living Translation puts Matthew 16, 25. It says, if you try to hang on to your life, you'll lose it. But if you give up your life for my sake, you'll save it. One more, 1 Corinthians 2, 9. says, this is what the scriptures mean when they say, no eye has seen, no ear has heard, no mind has imagined what God has prepared for those who love him. Earthly comfort, our human comfort, is nothing in comparison with the comfort that we have living in the arms of our Father knowing that I'm living in step with him and that I'll spend forever with him, not because of anything that I have done, but because of everything that Jesus has done and of my willingness to accept that and to be obedient and to say, there's no other way but Jesus. I'm going to follow you. I'm going to turn my life over. I'm going to be baptized. I'm going to have my sins washed away because there's no other way to be saved apart from Jesus. We have this tendency to chase comfort because when we're comfortable we we become apathetic we become lazy and we don't grow 
when we become comfortable, life gets challenging. It's nice for a season, but the best growth happens when our, our faith is stretched. When we're doing the things of Scripture, the one another's, the things that God has called for us to do, the things He has commanded for us to do, think of others before you think of yourselves. Love your neighbor as yourself. Pray for those who persecute you. We have to decrease so that Jesus can increase. Then I need less of me and more of Him. And it's only by God's grace. Any of us are here. That God allows for us to have another breath, for us to have another chance, for us to have another opportunity. Maybe you saw it in the news recently, a a phenomenal um, gesture of grace. The only question that college graduates, I think, are asking this time of year is, why didn't we get Robert Smith to speak at our commencement? Did you hear the story of the news? Smith is the founder and the CEO of Vista Equity Partners and an investment firm that's made him a billionaire Five times over, he received an honorary doctorate from Morehouse College and graduated on May 19th of this year. In his address as the keynote speaker, he told the graduates, he said, on behalf of the eight generations of my family who have lived in this country, we're going to put a little fuel in my bus. He said, this is my class 2019, and my family is making a great grant to eliminate your student loans. To all the graduates at Morehouse this year, and they added it up afterwards. Now, he obviously added it up beforehand, because even if you got the billionaire, you got to make sure you got enough to cover the nearly 400 graduates owed $40 million in student loans. And in a moment, I said, I'm going to pay that for you. Not because they'd earned it, but because he was just willing to graciously offer that. Grace offers to pay our debt. And what Robert Smith demonstrated is a microchasm of what God has done. He has offered to pay our debt, and we have to take him up on it. It's a gift that only becomes useful once we receive it. Now, can you imagine any one of those students going, no, nah, I'm not going to take that. Now, there might be one, but, man, they need to talk to somebody. <laughs> they got problems. I earned that. Anyway, can you imagine? No, somebody's going to pay this off for me, but no. Because if you break that down, this is about... I did the math earlier. I didn't write it down here, so I'll get it wrong either way. But that's a lot of money each one of them owed. Tommy could do it on the spot. If, right. But, I mean, that's close to $100,000 that each one of these graduates owed that it's just paid off. They had no idea that was coming. Just in a moment in that commencement speak where they're, speech where they're probably thinking, let's get this over with so we can get out of here. And he says, your debt has been paid. Jesus has paid our debt. He's paid everyone's debt. And that is a comfort we're seeking. Let's pray. Father God, we rejoice in knowing who you are and who we are because of that. God, may we not think so much of ourselves that we are unwilling to accept what you have offered to us. God, may we never look upon people thinking they're too far gone, that they cannot be forgiven, that God does not love them, that their life cannot be turned around, or that our lives can't be turned around because they can God, we thank you for offering us the opportunity to be part of your family forever. God, thank you for never giving up and for always being there with us. God, may we seek you above fame. May we seek you above perfectionism. May we seek you above stuff. May we seek you above the approval of other people. God, may we seek you.
And God, watch how you work and you line up the rest of our life for it. God, we are grateful. Thank you for our time together this morning. In Jesus' name, amen.